Hello, everyone. My name is Alex Ruiz Jacobo. Andrea Morales. And I'm May Ikahihipo. We are community interns at the MCCDC on our CSM campus. This is our the first live episode to our podcast, At The Root. It's a new project we have created for our student population. And as a FYI, this is going to be recorded for later use. So let's go ahead and get started. Thank you all for taking the time to be here today and attending our last UndocuWeek event. As you know, this is, of course, our last UndocuWeek event. We has three awesome panelists that we're going to talk to today. The world is currently in a crazy place, so we appreciate your time and energy in joining us today. This is the launch of our podcast, At The Root, where we're focused on creating a safe haven for underrepresented students on our campus, as well as unapologetically talk about social justice issues and people of color communities. Today, we will be discussing the topic of disrupting the good immigrant narrative with our three panelists, Nate Tan, Valeria Suarez, and Laith Ocean. Before we begin, we would like to give you a brief overview of what the Im good immigrant narrative is. The definition of the good immigrant narrative, according to the article, The Problem with the Concept of a Good Immigrant by Joe Zadeh, is that all immigrants are automatically deemed bad people until they somehow earn the right to be treated as humans and sit at the table. With that being said, we would like our panelists to start off by having them introduce themselves, their organizations, and line of work. Nate, would you like to start us off? Yeah, I could start us off. Um... Hi, everyone. Thanks um, for inviting me here. My name is Nate Tan. I use he and pronouns, uh, co-director at Asian Prisoner uh, Support Committee. Uh, and our organization has three, four primary focuses, which is um, our in-prison program at San Quentin, where we teach ethnic studies and Asian American studies uh, to the men inside. And then we have our re-entry program for people coming home. We have our small projects program where we produce like stories and anthologies of people inside prison and ICE and jails. And then I think what I got invited here for and what we're most publicly known for is our anti-deportation work. So we um, try to do a lot of the work to prevent uh, the deportation of people with criminal convictions. And um, we'll talk more about that when we get into the panel. Okay. Hi, uh, I'm Valeria Urbao. My pronouns are they, she, and I'm the uh, Bay Area Youth Coordinator for the California Immigrant Youth Justice Alliance, Mouthful, so CJA for short. Uh, and I'm also free as a coordinator, and my role in both of them are like to really work at the intersection of uh, criminal, the criminal legal system and the immigration system because they're very much interconnected. Um, for CJA, we're a statewide uh, organization, So, um, but I'm based in NorCal, and a lot of our work is centered around really like uh, empowering like undocumented youth uh, to lead deportation defense campaigns and just protect their communities overall. My specific position is uh, focused on a youth program to do, it's called the Liberators Program, and that through a seven week series, youth learn how to lead their own deportation defense campaign. Um, so again, we'll talk about that more in a little, but that's kind of the work that I do. And I'll pass it to Lei. Hi folks, my name is Lei Ocean or Lei. Uh, my gender pronouns are they, them. And I am currently an intern at the Multicultural Community Center at UC Berkeley. 
Um, and I also do work with California Immigrant Justice Alliance, or CJA. Um, and like Valeria explained earlier um, about what CJA does, it mostly does work around um, between like immigrant rights work, um, criminal justice, and in general, uh, advocate communities. Um, but more specifically, in uh, at UC Berkeley, I'm more so working um, on wellness, healing, um, and more so uh, academics uh, for undocumented students and undocumented youth. And then, sorry, I think I also have like a really long history in, in organizing. So most of my work um, also was in Santa Rosa, which is right there in California, uh, wine country. Um, and most of my work there has been working with immigrant communities there um, around local policy uh, and sheriff accountability. Yeah, so moving on and getting into the conversation, how does the good immigrant narrative impact your organization and our work? And how does the work y'all are doing challenge this narrative? Yeah, I could talk a little bit about this. This question. I think this question is a, a really important question because I think when people think about immigrant rights work, they think about DACA, they think about uh, undocumented folks, they think about uh, people pursuing college um, as like the good immigrants. Even people who don't pursue college but you know go through society without committing any criminal convictions, right, as good immigrants. Um, at APSC, we like to think of ourselves as working with the bad immigrants. And even more specifically, uh, our general population is like the bad Asians, right? Like, um, and I say that um, a little facetiously. Uh, if, when I started this work, um, I was really, you know, I think like all people, we look for uh, people that we don't have to explain ourselves around too right like it's almost like the purpose of of life like you want to be with people you don't have to explain yourselves around to but at the same time i had a lot of people telling me to go to college and you know who wants to go to college i'm just kidding this is probably a college predominant classroom we should you should all go to college um but when i went to college right there wasn't a lot of uh, you know i'm a child of cambodian refugees there wasn't a lot of cambodian people in college um and you know when i only went to college because i fell in love with a girl and she said she wouldn't date anyone who didn't go to college. So I went to college. And when I went, you know, the first question I asked at every college was, where are my Cambodian people at? And, you know, there's crickets. Maybe like one at community college and one and a half at uh, UC Berkeley where I transferred to. And then zero in graduate school. Um, and when I graduated, I like uh, really still had the strong urge to find people that I didn't have to explain myself to. Um, and then I volunteered with um, Asian Prison Support Committee and went into San Quentin State Prison. My first day there, I met more Cambodian people in that first day than I have in my entire college life, right? And I, I got my, like, you know, I did six years of school. And, um, and you know, I don't think it is uh, a reflection of, like, Cambodian people's characters or anyone's character in prison, but... Um, kind of a characteristic of the system in which we're all involved in, right? Um, and I made a lot of friends inside. And um, because a lot of them came here as children, uh, they came here as asylum seekers, or um, they came here really young as immigrants or uh, visa sponsors. When you commit a crime, you get your, um, you automatically fall into this category of uh, removal, right? Like you are a removable immigrant. Um, so a lot of the guys that we worked with inside, once they paroled out, they would face deportation. Uh, 
And because they were my friends, it felt really personal, right? Like, I just found this community. I don't want to lose this. I already lost this community to prison. I don't want to lose them to deportation. Um, and it was a really hard call. One of my first uh, buddies to get out, his name is PJ. Uh, he, was, he was incarcerated at the age of 14 as an adult to serve a life sentence at the age of 14. Can y'all imagine doing adult prison time at the age of 14? Um, and he, you know, he was one of the youngest people to ever be sentenced as an adult in California. Um, he paroled out and then he was transferred over to ICE to face deportation to, to Cambodia, a place he hasn't been to since he was like one or two years old. Right. And um, I would visit him in ICE and I didn't want to, you know, it's hard. You visit someone behind plexiglass. You can't like shake their hand. You can't give them a hug. Like it's just all plexiglass and telephone. And I didn't want to lose a friend, right? And um, when I asked him, like, "Hey, like, can we run a freedom campaign?" He was like, "Sure. What do I have to lose?" Because at that at that point, a lot of Cambodians were getting deported. So we ran a freedom campaign. And to be honest with you all, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no clue. Like in the immigrants' rights world. There was very, very little people fighting for immigrants with criminal defense, uh, with criminal, um, with criminal records or criminal convictions, right? Because it's not politically viable, right? Like people don't think like if you want to win something in politics, you don't fight for criminals first. Um, so it was hard, but I was really determined. So I launched this campaign um, with APSC, and you know what we tell people is. Um, if there wasn't racism and misogyny and transphobia and poverty in the world, could prisons exist? Uh, or if imperialism was in the world, can prisons exist? Uh, and I think the short answer to that is, if none of that existed, prisons wouldn't exist, right? Because the conditions to create crime wouldn't exist, right? And a lot of crime happens out of necessity or material need to escape poverty, right? Or in response to, to something. Um, I took like a month off of work, traveled all up and down the state of California to every university of California, almost every CSU, talked to students. I was like, hey, because students are really powerful, right? Like you talk about a group of people who um, can really mobilize. Like, um, And we had over 50,000 pieces of support material sent in to Governor Brown at the time for someone who had a murder conviction, right? Uh, and they were supporting him to not be deported. Um, and uh, you know, at the end of the at the end of the campaign, you know, we got a call. Um, we were really determined. I was like, we were hitting the road. Uh, and then it was the Friday before Mother's Day. I get a call from Ice, and Ice is like, um, uh, "Boy, PJI is going to get released in 24 hours. Someone better come pick him up." And they were like, "What? What? Someone's going to? They're going to release him?" So you know, we have to like scramble to drive down. He was in Bakersfield. He got transferred to Bakersfield. Drove down to Bakersfield um to pick him up and uh you know it was the first mother's day that he got to hug his mother for more than 30 seconds without any stipulations right and when i think about you know the good immigrant really harmed the work it made doing this work a little bit more harder right um and when we think about freedom and we think about liberation it really has to happen from the bottom up right because if you fight for people with criminal convictions Fighting for people who are undocumented, 
people who are DACA. It's almost automatic, right? Like, of course, if we give freedom to people with criminal convictions, then people with DACA status, people who are dreamers, people who are undocumented, they have to also automatically be free, right? Because when the boat is sinking and it's a wrecked boat, you don't want to fix the sail to get to freedom. You have to fix the bottom of the boat first, right? Um, yeah, that was kind of my long-winded answer to the first question. I'm going to mute myself now and give it to somebody else. Thanks so much, Nate. That was beautiful. Um, I think that I'm like, damn, I'm trying to now put my thoughts together after hearing that. Um, because I also feel like um, how I got involved in the work and Sija and everything that came with that, it's very much connected to, to what Nate shared. Um, but I guess to give a little bit of background on Sija, um, like I mentioned, we are an undocumented-led statewide organization, uh, specifically undocumented youth, right? Like it's in our name. So if you say undocumented youth California, immediately everywhere they're going to be like, oh, yeah, come and talk to us about the DREAM Act. You know, come to talk to us about like DACA and how we can renew or whatever it is, right? So it's very much centered around that same very good immigrant narrative. Um so when CJA was like wearing abolitionist organization who we don't want to focus on like that same, like the media is already shining a light on like uh, undocumented youth that are, you know, valedictorians that have the 4.0 that are like in school and all these other things. Uh, like that was not the work that CJA was building. Um, that was a big pushback when it comes to immigrant rights. And I think, it was CJ is one of the few organizations that I've encountered that does deportation defense work for folks that have criminal records in the same case that APSC does. Um, so just how I was able to see it unfold in terms of the good immigrant narrative is that so for context, I came to the U.S. when I was 16. Uh, so that's about eight years ago. Um, never qualified for DACA or any of that. So once I went to college, I was like seeing all these folks, right, that were very much on like, stuck on this like, um, like good dreamer type of narrative, like good immigrant type of narrative. And for me, it was like, I mean, I have to worry about like folks back home in Peru who are like fighting their own battles, right? And then I have to like, and then I was like, and there's people in detention at the time. I mean, there's still a lot of raids happening, but there was a specifically in 2015, um, rates happening across California targeting Central American families. Um, and when I first came to the States, the first folks that were like nice to me when I migrated were Central American folks. So I was like, I had this very deep connection that I was like, oh, hell no, you know? And I was like, I, the only thing that I had really because was in terms of identification because I didn't have a social security number or like a state ID was that I had my college ID. And I realized the amount of power that it had simply by having, you know, like a university ID. So then I was like, I need to do like put in the work to like support folks outside of this like institution. Right. So while like the media and like everywhere else, folks were asking to hear from like undocumented students. I was like, you all don't want to hear from us. Like we're not the voices that should be centered. Um so one of my friends, I started getting both like that. And then one of my friends told me, so this about five years ago, hey, like my sister uh, is currently in detention. And she was like, let's do a campaign to get her out. And then I had zero clue how to do it. Similar like to what Nate mentioned. It, it was more, it came out of necessity. It was like, 
We have no idea what we're doing, but yes, we're going to be there for every single court. Uh, we're going to make sure to pack the court and buy like I was at that time I was in undergrad. So I would go to every single of my classes and be like, y'all got to show up to this court. Like you can miss a class. It's not going to be the end of the world. So I was doing a lot of work around that, but I honestly had no idea what I was doing. Um, and then after that campaign ended uh, in and we were able to successfully free her, uh, we um, in 2017, there was a group of organizers that came together, uh, different, it was a coalition of like different organizations, including CJA. Um, and it was called that Immigrant Liberation Movement, ILM. And they had the first ever, back then it was called Promotoras, uh, which was a, maybe I think at that time it was a five uh, weekend training on how to do deportation defense. So for me, it was like, that was the first time where I felt like I had like agency was brought back to me. It was a group of like maybe 30 of us. It was like an intergenerational group of like elders, like young folks in high school, like families who... Their goal was we want to free our people that are inside detention. Uh, so every week we would get a case study. Um, and then once the last week hit, uh, it was like they gave us a case study again and we brainstorm and strategize. This is what you should do to free this person. And at the end of the, like, the training, they told us, so this is an actual person that is inside Mesa Verde Detention Center. If you want to get plugged in with the campaign, uh, please do so, reach out. And then that's how I started doing the portation defense once I already had the tools. And I just kind of never looked back. Um, but throughout this work, I realized how also like draining it can be uh, and how like it takes a lot of toll, especially being directly impacted and knowing that everyone inside, it could be you, it could be your family member, it could be your friend, um, your chosen family. So I think that takes a big toll. And for me, it was a big learning lesson that I realized that where my passion like really was, was in teaching folks how to do this work and give them the tools that were given to me, but making it sustainable. Because that's the biggest thing that happens in movement work. Like, especially when it comes to like undocumented youth led, if people burn out really quick, right? Like, uh, because folks are pushed to the maximum of their limits. And then, so, through this work, that's how I decided that's what I want to do. But the Good Immigrant Narrative, just like Nate mentioned, made this work so much harder um, because every time we were like, hey, like, like, let's talk about this person that is inside a detention center. This is their story. They would be like, oh, but how do you feel about Trump being in the office? You know, or like, do you fear for your life uh, as like someone that doesn't have DACA, right? And so it was very important for like me and like the other undocumented folks doing this work to make sure to not center our voices, but center the voices of those most impacted, which are inside the tension centers. So I think in terms of good immigrant narrative, it was a lot of pushback, even within our own communities, even getting a lot of backlash from our own communities saying, hey, like, no, we, we are also struggling. We want to center ourselves. And it was a big pushback. But I think that just seeing folks out and seeing folks freed is like so empowering that that's why I'm like, uh, I'm like happy to continue doing the work of like pushing back against it. Wow. Okay. That was, those are both really great stories. Thank you all for, for sharing. Um, I think I get really lost um, as both of y'all like, were like sharing. I was like really into the story. So I really appreciate y'all bringing that into the space. Um, my 
personal, I guess, history um, around immigrant rights. So I started around 2012, right after um, DACA was announced. Um, and initially, uh, so I, I was 15 at the time and I was still in high school and my first worry was like, okay, so how do I get this out to like folks? Cause I, I had been only like recently like volunteering um, at the time with North Bay Immigrant Youth Union, um, which is an affiliate of California Immigrant Justice Alliance, but just up north. Um, and I started doing like really small workshops um, with community trying to get folks to do DACA, like the usual like person back then in like 2012 with the immigrant rights. Um, just doing like small workshops and then that slowly escalated because I feel like the more I started talking to more people, uh, the more I started talking to other students, to all the donors that would come um, from church or from school or wherever, um, the more I realized how much bigger of a need that we had uh, that wasn't just like around um, getting folks DACA. Um, and I think it was also around the time where I was just still like a baby organizer and people were still like carrying me around. Um, so I remember just signing up for so many different like um, like different like campaigns or events or efforts that were happening at the time. Um, and that's how I ended up working on Rosa's campaign. Um, and Rosa is, Rosa is now outright. Uh, she was detained for I think over five years um, after like leaving her husband. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, um, that was the first time that I visited any form of like detention center, any form of prison um, or, or jail or anything of that kind. Um, and so when I first walked in, it was really like heavy just to be able to like be able to share space with someone who's been detained for so long. Um, and then even after that, leaving, um, having time to talk with uh, my femme tour at the time, Sandy uh, Valenciano, um, it was really a complete change as to how I saw um, immigrant rights work, how I, I related to um, the women in my community and also um, how much like survivor and survivorhood um, really mattered to me and how I really wanted to highlight it. And also it was my first time understanding how much survivors can be criminalized for just trying to survive their abuser. Um, and so after that, I got I, I never took like lead um in the campaign just because like everyone said i was very new to it very lost but i was also still very young um and so the folks that were mentoring me were leading that was as much as possible just supporting um so it was it from there um it was just more so about like uplifting every anything that came like my way um and this became like extremely difficult at the time i was at santa rosa junior college um and i spent three months three years there my apologies um and it was really great to be able to work with um, community, community college students. Like Nate said, students are very, very powerful. Um, and community college students, I, I don't know what it is. I just feel like there's um, a much more of a drive and connectedness to like um, community. Um, and because of that, I was just able to, well, there was still a lot of pushback, like folks said, of wanting to just focus um, on light-skinned, cisgendered, like able-bodied Mexicans. Um, specifically, it was really difficult for me to be able to include um, queer folks, survivors, all this other stuff, and really try to complicate the work. Um, but I don't think, like Valeria said, I, as soon as I started doing um, more work around criminalization, deportation specifically, everything else just kind of would fall into place. And it just, I never looked back as to looking at it the way that I do now um, and trying to push for folks uh, in a completely different way and also like connecting. Um, to the idea of what an immigrant is uh, in a completely different way. Yeah, just to echo something that Wayne said, um, thank you all for sharing sharing that and being vulnerable in this space. 
Um, considering some of the things y'all have just shared and on that note, what are some additional wins and campaigns you'd like to, to celebrate and share that you have participated in the past? I think some of the major wins, personally, um, I don't necessarily, like, while campaigns have been a pretty big part of my life, um, I feel like I don't, haven't seen necessarily campaigns entirely as a win. I think for me, what I've considered wins is just being able to um, have complicated the narrative that's been um, used for so long for the immigrant rights. Um, having been with immigrants of like almost like a decade, like gosh, I feel old when I say that. Um, I feel like I've just seen it grow so much um, within the time that I've been part of it. Um, and so I think my, just a huge win for me is just being able to have been like uplifting so many different events, campaigns that have changed the, the narrative that we have used for immigrant rights. So it's not now, whenever I talk about immigrants, folks don't necessarily, at least within spaces that aren't necessarily organizing um, in school, uh, don't just go directly to students, to DACA, um, even though it still happens, right? Um, and now it's more complicated. So there's so many other different identities that are popping up, like survivors, queer trans folks, um, complicating uh, what disability and ability look like and how that is implicated um, within immigrant rights and policy and criminalization. Um, we're talking about like incarcerated folks and so many other different avenues. Um, so I think that's my biggest win personally. Um, so I think that I can share my first one and my most recent one that I like, I feel like because I think both have marked me a lot. So my first one was the one that I mentioned around um, the case of my uh, friend's sister. So to give some content to her, like, context to it, um, it's called the Free Jazz or Free, Free Jasmine campaign. So this was back in like, I want to say 2015, 2016. Um, and we had been, she had been already in detention for about over two years. She had three kids that were waiting for her to be out. Um, she's a, like a survivor of domestic violence. We had been fighting for her like uh, for a while to get her out. And then the uh, the judge also had, like, he was, like, especially harsh on survivors and was, like, criminalizing survivors. Um, so it was a really big battle. And I remember the day of the last bond hearing because I was actually in finals week. So I I had to take a final in the morning. And then it was her last hearing. I feel like, for me, I just, like, really believe in my intuition and for me, I like I knew that something was gonna happen that day. I was like, I think she's gonna be out today. Um, so uh, it was like I took my final in like an hour, and then I rushed to SF to court to be outside. And maybe like twenty minutes after I get there, we hear that her bond, like that she had actually been given bond. And like I remember being outside and everyone crying and like being like, oh my god, like I can't believe it. And it was such a big win, but also the bond was like $25,000, which now um, in 2020, this is like super common, like they go up really high. But back then it was a lot, um, especially because in immigration hearings, if you give like you have to pay it in full, you don't just do 10% like in like the criminal legal system. So we were like, where are we going to get $25,000 from? And we were outside trying to brainstorm how we're going to fundraise and all these things. But by this point, we had been get putting uh, like a lot of attention and traction in media and like uh, traditional media and social media for jazz campaign. And, and 
until this day, I don't know who it is, an anonymous donor called Jazz's sister and said, I'm paying full bond. Like maybe five minutes after she was like outside. And I feel like that's an image that I'm never going to forget because it reminded me like there's even if through the legal path, she would have gotten bond. There's no way she would have been able, we would have been able to pause bond that day if it wasn't for community support. So that was such a big win that, and also the fact that it was my first like campaign ever that I was a part of and that we had no idea what we were doing. I think it was just such a huge win. Um, so I hold that super dear to my heart. Um, and then the most recent one is that actually la just last week, um, when I, besides FreeSF and Sija, I also have another job. And one of the uh, young people that I work with, um, He's uh, undocumented, a young father, and he was arrested by SFPD on false charges and then taken to San Mateo County Jail. Um, and immediately the day that I found out, I was like, I already knew that there was this big risk of an ICE transfer. So we started mobilizing. Uh, thanks to FreeSF, we were able to like build a campaign really within a day. And we mobilized to make sure that everyone was outside waiting for him outside the jail since like 7 a.m. until the second he got out. And he was able to get out free, like like free, no ice transfer. And we were able to ensure housing for him like temporarily. And all was done within 24 hours without even, even saying this person's name because we didn't want to disclose his identity. So for me, this was also a big reminder of the huge infrastructures that we have in our communities to protect each other and to ensure that we're able to like show up for each other, um, even without knowing who this person is, right? Like, so I think that was really powerful for me. And I'm also, so I'm, those are two big wins that are like come to my head right now. I feel like as organizers, we don't celebrate enough. Like everything feels like work. Like, I mean, that's the honest truth. Uh, but I do think there are really huge wins that uh, I hold really dear and near to my heart. Uh, so when PJ got free, that was a huge win. Uh, I mean, that was the first campaign I participated in, like to really great lengths. And uh, you know, something happens like to your molecules when you when you fight for something that you don't think you can win, and then you win. You're like, oh, I can keep going. Um, and I think another campaign is um, so ICE came uh, to Oakland and did an ICE raid. Uh, so I think there's like this really big misconception that people in ICE are like innocently like locked up in there. But two thirds of people in ICE are actually in there for criminal convictions, right? And a lot of them are in there from either being directly transferred from jail um, or prison, or they're picked up um, in a raid, right? Um, so Oakland, uh, so ICE came to Oakland and they like did a huge raid on the Cambodian community in Oakland and. Uh, you know, I grew up in Oakland, born and raised, and it felt really personal. Like these are like, um, uh, these are like some of my. I teach uh, part time at Laney College, and you know, so these are some of my students' fathers, these are my students' uncles. Or, um, so they came after like five people in the Bay Area and thirty something plus in Northern California. Um, I mean, talking talk about a workload, and uh, there was this huge will to do something, right? Because I think um, what is really scary about doing this work is that because the impacted people have criminal convictions, their families don't feel like they can ask for help because there's a lot of shame, right? When the news is always highlighting 
DACA and Dreamers and like these good immigrants, these families who have loved ones who face deportation as a result of criminal convictions don't feel like they can come forward or ask for support and help. Um, but because it was in Oakland and, and in our backyard and we were really connected, we held this huge meeting at a community center for impacted families and people who were affected by the rate to come. And it was a really somber moment. Like a lot of us were really sad. A lot of us felt a lot of loss. A lot of us didn't know what to do. I was asking myself, like, can we do this? And then Nia Norn, who's like, uh, uh, she uh, is one of our leaders in this movement. She was um, convicted uh, also as a young adult, a life sentence for a murder her abuser committed. Uh, she's out and free and she bought, she fought her deportation case in one. She was like, how are we going to do this? Which is very different than can we do this, right? Um, because how means that there is a possibility that we're looking to explore. And can is if, you know, like, like can we win it, right? Um, and when she said how, I mean, it was like a different energy in the room. So we launched this huge campaign. It was a multi-person campaign called um, Hashtag Pardon Refugees, um, because a lot of these people came here as refugees. Um, and we had like mothers, grandmothers, aunties, uncles, grandpas, four-year-old kids, two-year-old kids uh, join this movement, right? They, um, they would take a bus out to Sacramento and um, advocate to their elected officials as why they should try to prevent these deportations. They spoke in front of city council. I mean, like these are like older Cambodian people who don't speak a lick of English, right? Um, speaking from their hearts and their kids were speaking. Um, they were packing the courts. And this is the first time a lot of them were getting politically involved. And I remember we were trying to pack the courts for a bond hearing for one of the Cambodian refugees who got picked up. And a lot of the elders were like, you know, does this do anything? Like, does us showing up do anything? Uh, they showed up anyway. They showed up in two huge charter buses. You know, the sitting room in a court, in an immigration court is like 50 people. We packed that thing with like 200 people. And then after that, like SF ICE facility was like, okay, we're not letting anybody in no more. Um, but we packed it. And the person we were going to support won bond. It was so huge. It was ridiculously huge. I mean, the energy in that courtroom, we were screaming in that courtroom. And they, were, they called the cops on us because we were so rowdy. But they felt so good. They felt so high off of that hearing, off that win. They went to go support Ida, who was um, a woman seeking asylum from, I think it was Honduras. They felt so good. They sat in that courtroom, right? Uh, packed that courtroom to support Ida in, in her asylum hearing. Um, and Ida won too, right? And I think about how that is like the solidarity we all dream of, right? That is like the solidarity we all wish for like this. Um, uh, it's like unspoken, like you don't have to even speak the same language, but you just show up for each other because you know how important it is to be there for one another and be there for people impacted by like extreme systemic violence, right? Um, and I think that itself is like a huge win for me, right? Um, and I think about this work often because I've, I've been in this work for a, a while and you know, at the end of the day, this work is always going to be there. As long as white supremacy is going to be there, as long as capitalism is going to be there, as long as racism is going to be there, um, whether Biden or Trump wins, this system is still going to be there, right? 
so the work is always going to be there. But at the end of the day, the huge wins is how we build relationships with each other in these super deep, powerful, meaningful ways, right? Um, and, you know, after that Pardon Refugees campaign, we were able to free everyone impacted by the ICE raid in Northern California. Wild, like it was unheard of. Like everyone's deportation was prevented. And we threw this huge ass barbecue um, to celebrate. And organize, you know, here's a, like a pro tip. Organizers don't really like know how to celebrate a party because they always want to organize something. Like, uh, we threw this big ass party um, and everyone was invited. It was like over like 200 people. And I think it was like one of the most amazing experiences to, to have, right? Like to have families believe that they're deserving of freedom, that they're deserving of being with their loved ones, that other people are deserving of this too. Um, and that's a win, I think, for the movement. On the, just echoing something that Valeria said about um, supporting and uplifting our community, our podcast is all inclusive, meaning we support and uplift all POC communities. Can you help us understand why it is important to dispel the myth that undocumented experiences only affect Latinx in regards to this narrative? So I think it's important to dispel the myth, but you know, I think sheer number wise, it does disproportionately impact the Latinx community, like just sheer number wise, right? And uh, the impact of ICE incarceration impacts a lot of people. Um, and actually ICE deportations disproportionately impact, impact black immigrants, right? And disproportionately impacts um, black women survivors specifically right because when we think about the criminal justice like i think it isn't until recently that we thought about ice the detention center of ice as an extension of the prison system right and not just a system for immigrants and if we're looking to do work that is uh liberatory for all people that frees them all we have to understand how these systems how these systems impact like everyone across the board um and that means if you're with any movement for disability justice, if you're for queer liberation, trans liberation, if you're um, for Black Lives Matter, right? Like this is your battle, right? Battling against the carceral state, battling against prisons means you're battling against ICE, means you're battling against police. Um, and I think um, kind of honing in on single, single communities is helpful for organizing just for scalability and capacity. But you can't do that without looking at the bigger picture, like the bigger system, right? And the bigger goal. And I think what I what I've learned in this work is um, if you only hone in on this single community, single aspect of this work, um, I think a question I always ask myself is, what happens when we get ours? Does the work stop? Right. And I think that's a really important question. Like after you know, I ask. I ask people all the time, like, after Cambodian folks get free, is that it? Am I done? Am I retired? Am I going to go work on a ranch and raise dogs and be a dog uh, herder? I don't know. I love, I love animals. But, you know, is, does my organizing work stop? And it doesn't, right? Um, and I think we have to dream and believe beyond um, our own communities uh, and believe that what we want for our communities is deserving for everyone. Um, I feel like... Similar to what Nate said, I think that, so when I came to the States, I feel like I noticed this thing around like, you know, like 
like folks were very much like Latinx unity and all that, but they were also like, you know, like we only care about this one, so or we only care about this immigrants and you just got here, so we're not gonna be friends with you, you know? So I was like, they weren't the folks that like, you know, like had my back or anything like that. So I don't, even when I first arrived, like I feel like I already had this context of like, it's not really about identity. Um, and also like, so growing up in Peru, um, there's, um, I mean, all over the, the globe really, but um, just because I'm most connected to like, what's happening in Peru, I can attest to that. There's a lot of femicides happening. Uh, a lot of like young women being disappeared and like killed and many other things as in between. Um, so I grew up seeing that and I grew up like having like classmates and friends and chosen family, like just like disappeared because of the violence that was happening. And I saw that the state was not doing anything about it, right? Like, because many times they were the ones behind it. So um, I saw that the main ones that were like doing the work was like a lot groups of like Peruvian feminists that were like mainly like, like young women, like queer and trans folks that were like, you know what, we are gonna protect each other, right? So that was my first time of seeing like, okay, so this government doesn't have my back, but they have my back, right? So this, that's what I saw growing up, like as a teenager. And then I came here when I was 16. And then the first time that I had that like chance of, feeling like someone like had my back was when I was in high school and like a lot of like the people that had my back were like black women who were like oh like you know like were like asking me like how do you get here and all these other things and like I think for me in terms of like black feminism is that thing that taught me and that aligned most with what I knew around like solidarity and protecting each other and community care right so when then it became this thing around like, oh yeah, we need to free people out of like ice or like cages because of this or that identity. I was like, nah, we need to free them because they're people and no one should be inside a cage, you know? So um, I think that for me, it was very much like, a, I, I don't think I grew up seeing that around like nationality or like identity because I knew that it was more about like who has my back and many times it's not someone that is the same skin color as you. Um, and also like, I'm Peruvian and like I mentioned like a lot of Peruvian migrants here in the US are like folks that like displace my family back home you know so when I like people are like oh yeah that person's Peruvian like you should meet them or whatever you know I'm like what well, part of Peru <laughs> because I feel like I'm like there's a specific parts that I'm like I like that matters you know so I feel like once like folks migrate here there's this idea that like everyone has each other's bags but I think there's a lot of racism that there's a lot of anti-black in that community that I think it needs to work through uh, before like, you know, like saying this idea of like unity and things like that. Um, but yeah, so I think that's why when it comes to like the work that I do, I don't think it's ever been centered around like identity. I'm more around like, we need to free these folks just because it's what should be done. Yeah, um, I'd like to echo that just because I think when we talk about like, even before we talk about Latinidad, right, like, um, and why, like, these specific people are being overrepresented, um, like, I, I think it's always important to ask, like, why, why, what does Latinidad even mean when you're talking about it? Um, and that usually, like I said earlier, um, ends up being, like, lighter-skinned, cis-het, like, men for, for Mexico. Um, sometimes it's women, uh, but, like, the movement didn't come up like that, right? Um, and so expanding 
the idea of what Latinidad means also means recognizing the different facets of it. Um, and I don't even think that that is recognized when people are talking about like Latinx issue. Um, and like similar to as, as Valeria, I'm from Nicaragua. And so when I first came to the States, um, like I saw other Latinos, but they didn't really want to talk to me because I spoke differently. Um, and like the words and phrases that I would use were just very different, so they would read it out. And so uh, like when I, since I was very, very little, I like lost my accent or like words um, just because I was so like pushed aside because of how I spoke. Um, and so like moving up, um, all that I got to do was we just try to immigrant folks. Um, and it was, when I first started doing it, I, I still thought it was like, Latinos, right? but I think the more that I started doing it, the more I started realizing that there was like, Santa Rosa had a huge immigrant population. Um, I met a document of folks that were white, um, even in movies, it was like white Canadians who were like apparently immigrants. And I was like, okay, wow. So this isn't like being an immigrant and being undocumented um, comes from so many different shades. Uh, and like Nate said earlier, um, like once we're in the US, we're now under the laws of the US. Um, and that means that we are illegal and folks who have been, or would already been criminalized here or, even, or criminalized. Um, so queer trans folks, black folks, um, and who are then disproportionately affected by like, deportation, incarceration, um, and other forms of violence that, that aren't just like um, from the state. Uh, and yeah, just that, that's why we should be complicating it a lot more. Thank you all for your answers. To keep this conversation about inclusivity in our podcast, we also want to focus on personal healing. So how does the work that you're doing uh, is healing you? It's is, is giving you some some type of heal and do you have any practices that that keep you sustained in the work and if so can you give us some tips or tricks on on how to you know apply that to yourself that's funny <laughs> i apologize i feel like for the most for the majority of my organizing career i don't think i ever saw organizing itself as healing until i got to actually stop and like reflect back and see how much like i had changed in, in how much or like experience it had been um organizing itself is really really triggering especially if you're organizing from a point of someone who's directly impacted um uh, because that's completely like explaining and having to like validate and humanize yourself constantly um not just to like people out in like huge communities in a position right but just in general like face to face um so it, it can get really intense um uh, but at the same time i think organizing allowed me to own like being illegal and being queer um, and being able to be so many other things and, and not have to apologize for it as much as I was doing beforehand um, and really deal with a lot of um, my own like personal life and being able to like really place myself um, and how I was impacted by these different systems and how I was shaped um, and really understand what it was in or out of my control. Um, I think also like just being able to talk to so many different folks uh, from different walks of life also just gave me a completely different perspective um and as far as like personal healing um like i said earlier i do a lot of reading <laughs> for fun um to clear my head uh and that being my main source um at least currently um but at the same time like being able just to have friends and community uh to like have support um has also carried me throughout almost the entirety of my organizing career. So like really having a really set foundation, a set team, um, or even just folks that you're able to like really bond with and that is so much more than like just us working together or something that's transactional. Um, 
and really make it more intentional. I'm like, do you all have any tips or tricks you want to share? <laughs> um, so I think that um, first, so I've been organizing for five years and I've been in this country for eight. Uh, and I've been, show <laughs> Luna, and I've been in, uh, and I've been in removal proceedings for a year. So uh, I feel like it's, and I don't, I think that having say that, um, I, I don't think there's anything in life that has shown me more about love and heartbreak than organizing. Um, I feel like that's something that for folks that want to get involved with organizing or especially like, you know, lead work, uh, that's something to just come to terms with. Like there's wins like we've shared. And they're amazing, but there's also a lot of heartbreak along the way. And not, not only heartbreak doesn't just look like losing a campaign, it looks like losing people in your doing the work, you know, like seeing people burn out, seeing just in general, like relationships falling through. So I, I feel like organizing has given me a lot of heartbreak and a lot of burnout. And I, but it also has shown me way more about love and like unconditional love than probably any like relationship or anything that I've been in um, because it was when I was able to see like you show up for community no matter what like it doesn't matter if like you don't like this person it's like if something happens to you I'm a right for you no matter what you know like I'm gonna show up there and be outside your hearing I'm gonna pack it no matter what right uh, so I think that organizing has shown me that and has like really like helped me survive a lot in certain ways as well and it has given me a chosen family like which I did not have before right like I think as like being queer and undocumented I feel like you're this place in like in two different ways right so I think for me to be able to have found my family through organizing I feel like that's something that I'll forever be grateful for um but because of all this burnout I think that there's also tough decisions that need to be made and sometimes tough decisions even just look like, I'm going to take a week off. Like, and I know there's an action happening this week, but I might still take that week off, you know? So, like, I feel like that, that seems like it's not a lot, right? But it takes so much out of, like, I think for me, it took a lot out of me to just say, like, this is my boundary. Like, I cannot do that, you know? Um, but I think that long term, too, like, being directly impacted by it, like, I remember in 2019 yeah early 2019 I had already like done a lot of the petition defense work and I was getting really tired and I was about to graduate and I remember I told my friend you know what I'm not gonna do any more deportation defense campaigns for the rest of this year and three months later I had to lead my own campaign so that's also another thing that comes with being directly impacted it's like you don't know what's gonna hit your way and you have to know when to rest when to take breaks when it's too much for you to hold and when you have to lean on other people. So I think that last week when I was sharing about like um, the campaign that I was helping on and leading uh, to freeze and stop and ice transfer, it didn't only taught me a lot about like the infrastructure that we have to hold the person that is released and to ensure their safety, but it showed me about how the people that I have in my life to take that help me take care of me. Like I have an amazing team at CJA that they all had like a mini intervention and they were like, how many hours are you putting onto this? What are you doing? Like, who's holding you? Why are you taking time off? You know, uh, and all of that was through like also the connections that I made, right? So 
I don't think I have any specific tips or tricks to like how to get it together while doing this work. Uh, so if anyone else does, let me know. Um, but I think the biggest one for sure that has helped me establish like boundaries uh, is having a dog. I've had my dog for two years and a half now. She's totally like, she's the reason why I survived a lot of things. Um, but she also helps me with boundaries, right? So like, Sometimes I'm like, oh, like before I would sleep very like few hours, but now she's like, hello, I need to go to sleep. <laughs> um, so then she's like, and I can go to sleep right there, you know, so she's like, come on. Like, so I think she helps me draw boundaries as well. Um, so that would be my advice. Figure out what you need uh, to show, <laughs> to have boundaries. And I will show Luna in a little. <laughs> she's sleeping right now. So she's going to get mad if I wake her up. I would like to highlight something important that you mentioned before. And that's taking breaks. And I think that uh, for me, that's really important, taking breaks and meditating about yourself and, and, and also realizing what's wrong and what's not with yourself. That's also helpful. So thank you, Aleria. That, that was really nice. Nate, would you like to talk this time? <laughs> I don't really have anything to add. I don't want to go after Valeria. I mean, like, this... Stuff is hard. You know, you want to experience some real heartbreak. Like you don't get into a romantic relationship. Start organizing like that. that that's not heartbreak. Um, but but that's also to say I don't want to discourage you all from organizing. Like we need more people in this work. Like come join the work. Um, and I think it's easier to get into this work with the initial jump start being rage. Right? Like I hate the system. A cab. F the police, you know, like it's really easy to get into the work when you feel that way, but that's not the best way to sustain yourself, right? Like, I mean, what, how you sustain yourself in this work is going to be rooted in this really deep love, not only for your community and for the people inside and impacted people, but really deep love for yourself, right? Like, how are you going to take care of yourself? I just came back from a two week, like, uh, break, right? I, I'm, I I barely feel like I took care of myself. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's to say that we have to be, you know, I think as organizers, it's easy for us. It's almost muscle memory to give grace to the people we are organizing for, like this unmerited um, extra mile type of grace, right? Like we love you unconditionally. And we are so abusive to ourselves as organizers. And I think what I'm coming to terms with now is how do I give myself that same amount of grace, right? And what would my work look like and what would the world look like if we all gave ourselves that type of grace? Y'all gave us so great tips and tricks. Even though you 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 all said that you didn't have anything to say, but thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And I think I will take this this tips to myself as well because these are helpful. So to finalize this great conversation we're having right now, my last question for you is how can the community and all students get involved in disrupting this narrative? Would you like to let our audience know any events or ways uh, they can help you with your work and organization? I can get started. I think that, um, so it looks a little different. Um, in terms of like now that it's COVID, right? But before, um, I think there's a lot of strength in like showing up for folks inside. Um, so while I was like, when I was a student, I was organizing for folks outside as well. So I 
realize a huge power that comes with like like a student-led stuff so I think that I want to encourage folks to get plugged into like uh community organizing like just outside of your network what are some things that you can do um and I think many times people see organizing as like oh I have to be behind a megaphone or I have to like be on all these meetings you know or all this other stuff which I mean it is a lot of it <laughs> but also organizing and showing up it's really about what is skills there is a lot of <laughs> but what is skills do you have uh, that you can bring to this like movement, right? And that you can do to shop for folks that are like incarcerated and detained. So for example, like one time I was talking to someone, they were like, I want to get involved, but I don't really know what I should do. And they were like, I was like, what, what do you like? What do you enjoy doing? Or what are you good at? And then she was like, oh, I'm really great at like babysitting. And I was like, and she was like, but that's nothing related to it. And I was like, it is very related to it because you can offer to do like caregiving for like, the wives of folks that are inside, you know, or for like the families of people that are inside so then they can go visit uh, or things like that, right? So it's like leveraging whatever skill or hobby or thing that you enjoy doing and seeing how can you use some of your time to like also um, like help folks inside. Um, and I think that in terms of like the specifically disrupting the narrative, I think it's a day-to-day -day thing. Like I think it looks like uh, especially for folks that are like immigrants themselves and many times you have like for example like every time there's something going on with like the administration especially now that elections are coming up or then there's uh, um, like something going on with DACA or something like that they always reach out to students right so what I did while I was a student I was like let me connect you to the family of this person that is inside so you can highlight their story right so what does it look like to share your platform as a student, because a lot of that is like your voice is like uplifted. So what does it look like to share that platform that you have? Uh, so I think those are some overall general things that I would like encourage folks to do and to like research and plug in. I also have a couple announcements, but I can leave that to the end or unless you want me to do that right now. I think we can leave that to the end. Yeah, thank you. Oh, and I'll pass it to Leigh. <laughs> thank you. Um, Yes, uh, I agree with that. Um, and also, I, I think folks really, I think when you think of organizing, everyone wants to do like this really huge thing um, that's like really hot on like social media, et cetera, et cetera. And like, yes, 100% go for it. Um, but also, I think if you're trying to start something, I, I would really encourage you all to start um, thinking of like smaller. Um, I, not necessarily in like what you are hoping to do, but more so in analyzing what you can do. Um, think about like who is your community? Like you're at y'all are at community college. Like who who is part of that? What are the needs of your community? Talk to people. Uh, get to know who the people who are around you, the people who you talk to every day. Um, and that's just the first how you like start relationships and how because you, you can't really like be a community organizer without having community. Um, and once y'all know like who you are around and with and sharing space with, and like y'all can identify um, all the different issues that y'all are, are facing or different forms of profession you are facing, um, get the school behind you, um, not necessarily as an institution, but take their money, 100% rob your institution, rob every institution. Um, and that way y'all can plan something that y'all can do together, whether it's just a really small event sharing your stories, um, a really small event sharing somebody else's stories, um, or just having a workshop and being able to like invite an organization that's um, that y'all are really interested in, just so they can talk about their work, um, and y'all can introduce not just your friends but your community, right? Um, and that way you can leverage like what they were saying, your platform in so many different ways. 
um, and y'all can start something that's very deeply organic and personal to your own community that's addressing your issues. Um, but yeah, I think that's what I said to get involved. Um, I would also like within knowing your community, just know who the organizations are around and what they're working with. Not every organization that you see is gonna like treat you well. Um, so I would always be really cautious when y'all enter um, organizing spaces um, or nonprofits in general, the whole, um, they can be a little complicated. So once y'all do go in, I 100% support the enthusiasm, um, but always make sure to have some boundaries um, as a whole. Um, but yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, my, my two cents is right people inside, like right people inside, right? The basis and foundation of organizing is relationships, right? If you can't organize for people inside if you don't know nobody inside. Right? That's a double negative. That's a really bad example for a college presentation. But right people inside, right? Um, and the, you know, I want to go to Leigh's point. I think it's easy for us to say community as like this all encompassing word, right? Like, you know, do it for the community, community organizer, fight for the community, right? In your free time, I want you to name 10 people in your community right? Like name 10 people. And if you can name 10 people, great, right? And I don't want y'all stretching, right? Like my mom is in my community, right? Like, you know, I, I initially put my mom in and then I took her out because I was like, oh, I got to make room. But, you know, naming your community is really important, right? And then filling in those gaps, building relationships, right? Who do you turn to when you feel hurt, right? And then the bigger question is, well, first, List people who you turn to when you feel hurt. And the next part, list people who you turn to when you hurt people. I bet you a thousand dollars that list is tremendously shorter than the list of people you turn to when you feel hurt, right? But that's what community is. These group of people that you have unconditional love for and you give, but receive love from, right? So in short, write people inside. Follow all of our organizations on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, because that's where all our events are posted. And like Lee said, donate to our organizations somehow, somewhere. And the work, donate to the work. Or get your rich friends to donate to the work. Well. <laughs> some people got some, just say it because that. No, you're, you're all good, Lee. So um, we wanted to leave these questions at the end because when we were creating this podcast, we knew and we also understood the importance of acknowledging the intersectionality of the LGBTQIA plus community and immigration. Our question is, how does disrupting the good immigrant narrative interconnect with this community? You, If you feel comfortable with this question, you can answer. And if you don't, you're, just feel free to just keep yourself muted. Um. I think this is a really complicated question that like has so many different answers. So I feel like I'm trying to get my head together in like a line because mumbling thoughts. Um, but queer folks and trans folks in general um, are another like oppressed, criminalized group, right? And it, it disrupts the good immigrant narrative um, because the good immigrant narrative wants a family. The good immigrant narrative wants you to have an education, um, a really high education and um, military, if that's what you all into, whatever, um, and have a, like, a really good job, right? For queer people, getting a good job and having a stable job and presenting however they wish to is really, really difficult. Um, 
for queer trans folks having families um, that love and accept and fully support us to be able to go out and get education or get a job or whatever um, is also very hard. Queer trans folks are usually um, targeted to be abused um, physically, sexually, and, and, and attacked in so many different ways. Um, however, we're entirely like, seen as like pedophiles um, and deviants and so many other stuff that then ends up criminalizing us. Um, and that forces us to find jobs that are very risky um, that then, again, gets us criminalized or gets us hurt and killed. Um, and so this is kind of what complicates it, queerness. I think usually also like the whole narrative on queerness is, is also weird because um, there's still a lot of like class and stuff involved. Um, but I don't, this is just why um, involving queer folks has changed so much of how immigrant rights is. Um, a, lot, a huge part of the immigrant rights movement has been coming out of the shadows. And coming out of the shadows is planned by queer trans folks in, out of Chicago. Um, and that was a complete strategy taken out of like LGBTQ folks, um, taken from LGBTQ community, um, where it's like us coming out, being visible, uh, and that giving us a lot more uh, protection within ourselves. And that had also being a way of how um, deep, like deportation defense campaigns began. Um, queer trans folks have entirely changed also how we've been able to see like our bodies, how we see healing um, and how we see relating to each other as community. Because um, as queer folks, queer trans folks, we have a specific way of building what our idea of family uh, and community is and how we defend each other. So it's the good immigrant narrative often only focus on defending people who have like a family, like, oh, this person, they're out in Berkeley, they have, they're a family of like blah, 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 they're doing great. Um, but when queer trans folks haven't had that contact and have been dissociated from their family or in foster care, or et cetera, et cetera, um, that, isn't, that story's gonna look completely different for us. And also historically, queer trans people have held so much healing um, and brought that into the space. Uh, and I don't know, I feel like queer trans folks healing um, or queer healing is just so inherently like magical um, and great. Those are the ways it's being brought up. I'm not entirely sure how to describe it, but this is really great. Yes. Um, I feel like I don't think there's much to add for me on that, but I feel like uh, something that I would say too in terms of like the importance of like acknowledging it or just like bringing it up is like this also happens within organizing communities. Like I've experienced homophobia and like transphobia in like organizing spaces. So it's like, like, you know, like check your homies too, you know, especially if like you're like a straight cisgender. Um, like it doesn't, it's not like just because you're in a movement space, you're automatically like, yes, like I'm not gonna like, um, like do any of this like isms, right? Like, uh, so I think that it's really important to like practice that too. Like, um, and I, as I mentioned that earlier, like too, when I think when we were talking about um, like healing, I said that like like queer folks, like undocumented queer folks, we have experienced displacement like twice, right? Like, I mean, some like some folks are like really lucky that they're like, their families are like really open and they like support them. Uh, some of us are not, right? And I think that we don't only experience displacement from like our home country, but then, and like mistreatment once we come here because we're also criminalized. Uh, but we experience mistreatment from like our families, right? So I feel like, once we find that chosen family, we're gonna fight like help for it, like for it, you know? So I think that like go back, going back to Lay's point, like I feel like for me, like 
like queer folks have really like been my family, like, and I think have really helped me in ways that other folks have not been able to. And I'm like so, so immensely grateful for it. And I think that's why I feel like there's this need for like folks to understand that like when we're talking about who to center, it should also like, and even in folks inside, it should also be like queer and trans folks who are like, because they're doubly targeted inside detention centers, inside prisons, inside jails. Um, so I think that, yeah, it's also, it's something that should be uplifted in the same way that other things are not like kind of like discarded or put to the side um, because it's not like we can opt out of it, right? Like we don't really like opt out of like being queer when we enter a space. Um, so um, yeah, I, I don't think there's much more to add on that point. Oh, actually I do have one. When we're talking about separating families, that also like, I'm like, instead I like moving away from that and going like around like separating communities or separating chosen family. Cause not, not everyone has a family here in the US. Doesn't mean that because of that, we shouldn't fight for them to be out of a cage. Uh, I don't have really much to add as the cis man on this call, cis straight man on this call. But I will add that when we talk about incarceration and ICE, I think the automatic assumption is that it impacts men. There are queer folks inside and there are trans folks inside. There are large populations, and going to Lay's point, of criminalized trans folks and queer folks inside prison and ICE detention. And then my second part is queer and trans folks have been leading this movement and this work since day one. This movement is queer, this movement is trans, this movement is disabled. Right, this movement is for freedom for all people. And queer and trans folks have been leading that charge since, since day one, since the get, right? Because while other organizations and politicians try to find what is politically viable, right, queer and trans folks are have always been demanding, have always been demanding what um, can the fullest freedom look like, right? Um, so you know, we really have to attribute, you know, abolitionist language and work and this movement to and trans leaders. That's it. Before we open uh, the next three minutes to the audience to ask any questions or, or just give us any any comments, is there anything else you guys would like to add to this conversation or um, announcements? As Valeria, I remember before you said you had something to say, so I think this is the time. Thank you. Um, so, well, I, I have two. <laughs> I'll try to be quick. But actually, as Nate said, um, around like writing letters for folks inside, well, if folks want to do that, there's an event happening this Saturday, letter writing event for a youth named Juan Jose. So uh, for folks that are not familiar with Juan Jose's case, he's currently uh, detained at Yuba County. And he came to the U.S. as an unaccompanied minor in 2016. Uh, he's now 20 and he has been incarcerated and detained for... Um, three years of his life since he was 10, since he was 17. So like, imagine like your most formative years he's spent inside a cage. Um, he, um, he was like profiled as a gang member uh, because of like, without any evidence and allegations. And then he was put inside and then transferred to ICE. Um, now that he's been there for over two years, he's actually led hunger strikes inside Yuba. Um, because he's not only fighting for his own freedom, but he's fighting for better conditions and the freedom of everyone else inside. Uh, because of that, he's been targeted by the like jail guards. He's been retaliated against, and we've been like as Sija, we've been fighting for his campaign for uh, about two years. 
So um, we're having the letter writing tomorrow. I'm going to drop the RSVP link on the chat and also the, I don't, I'm not sure if but um yeah i'm i'm putting that link the registration link and also the twitter page so if you all can follow the page and like get updates and anything like that um so that letter writing is happening tomorrow at 5 30 so you can just join hear more about his case hear the updates and also uh write a letter for him because as nate said like that's what that's how i started building a connection with Juan jose um because it's hard, like, it's hard to trust people while you're inside, you know, you don't know who to count on. And we literally started writing and talking about Game of Thrones. And that's how he, like, remembers me. He's like, I like the book. And then I sent him books. And that's how we built a connection. Um, so really encourage folks to, like, go to the event tomorrow. And then another one is because you all of you are based in San Mateo, right? Or, like, I mean, all of you are students in San Mateo or have a connection to it. Some of you might live in San Mateo or have families that live there. Um, I want to plug the Truth Forum happening on Tuesday. Uh, so not sure if folks know uh, what a Truth Forum is, uh, but I'll explain just in case. So uh, Truth Forums came out of um, that sanctuary law policy that got passed. And like basically it's where the sheriff gets to like be put on like in front of a judge and like say, like share what like the ICE transfers that have happened in the county. So it's an opportunity for community members to like also give public comment and say like, we do not agree with the transfers that are happening between like the sheriff department and uh, ICE. And actually like the sheriff is responsible, like since 2018, he has transferred over a hundred people to ICE. Um, and there is also like in 2019, San Mateo County Sheriff is responsible for half of the total number of transfers that have happened in all the Bay Area. Um, so if you all can join, the, the Truth Forum is happening Tuesday at 6 p.m. Um, someone, yeah, someone shared the link on the chat, uh, beat me to it. But yeah, if you can go and even get public comment go on the link on the chat and then I'll put everything that I just shared on the chat as well. I would like to thank everyone for joining our first live episode of the MCCD's podcast at the root. We want to give a huge thank you to our panelists, Leigh, Valeria, and Nate for bringing forth all this information for our community. We appreciate you guys. We appreciate the time you, you put into this and, and, and all the advices you gave us and, and all the valuable information you brought to our panel today. And I am also assuming that more students and, and more people in our community at CSM will also appreciate this. So we hope you'll join us our next couple weeks for our next episode. Stay tuned and follow our Instagram at the root CSM MCCDC. Stay positive and live your life whatever way that means to you. Thank you all. <laughs> it was great. It was great talking to you and it was great seeing this, this amazing audience. Have a great weekend. 